Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to episode 21 of Mysteries Abound. I'm your host, Paul. This week we're going to be looking at a number of stories. Some of these include A Leaf from Leif, Columbus Might Have Been a Viking Disciple, and from Cryptomundo, some new Loch Ness photos. From the wondercabinet.co.uk website, the 24-digit kid, and from the mysteriouspeople.com, King of the Gypsies. And from the Museum of Hoaxes, Pope Joan. Those and some other stories on episode 21 of Mysteries Abound. first article is just a little snippet of a thing and it comes from the www.roadsideamerica.com website. Thomas Edison's Last Breath. Henry Ford believed that the human soul exited the body with its last breath. So it was with mixed feelings that we discovered this oddballed artefact in Henry Ford's museum and Greenfield Village. Ford somehow convinced Thomas Edison's son to sit by the dying inventor's bedside, clamp a test tube over his mouth and then plug it with a cork. Maybe Ford's intentions were noble and he expected future scientists to reconstitute Edison from the ether, or 
Maybe Henry just liked having Mr. Lightbulb dangling from his rearview mirror. And the next article, which is a fairly short one as well, comes from the www.wunderkabinet.co.uk website. The English translation is Cabinet of Wonders, but if you're looking for it on the internet, it's W-N-D-E-R-K-A-B-I-N-E-T-T, which is German, I imagine. And this one you might have seen on the news. It's about the 24-digit kid. I'm always impressed by polydactyly, But here is an interesting case of all the extra fingers being fully functional. According to doctors at St Luke's Hospital, a baby born in San Francisco has six perfectly formed and functional fingers and toes on his hands and feet. The remarkable thing is not that he was born with the 24 digits, but the fact that all 12 fingers are fully developed and functional, and that additionally all 12 toes are working as well. Almost all previous such cases didn't have this functionality premise. So one can't actually say whether the boy is lucky or not. The term used to describe an occurrence such as this is polydactyly, and it isn't really uncommon for a genetic trait such as this to end up creating a couple of extra fingers or toes in a family genetic line. The odd part of the whole thing is that the baby was born with full functionality and looks to be able to go through life with extra fingers and toes. Kamani Hubbard's extra digits look so normal they weren't noticed at first, said his mother, Mirioki Gross, of Daly City. Extra digits run in the father's side of the family, said Dad, Chris Hubbard, but none have been so perfectly developed. Moreover, not even ultrasound showed the extra fingers and toes, and doctors said that the case is extremely rare and that because all additional digits are fully functional, that it isn't considered a disability or deformity. It's merely an interesting and beautiful variation, rather than a worrisome thing, said Dr Michael Treese. Imagine what sort of a pianist a twelve-fingered person would be, or flamenco guitarist, or typist, he said. And as a little note from the author, I agree with the doctor. Celebrate the wonder of nature. The following article comes from the www.cryptomundo.com website and it was posted by Lauren Coleman on February 5, 2009. It's entitled New Loch Ness Photo and if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and that's O-R-I-G-I-N-Z for Origins and click on the link at the top to the Mysteries Abound podcast you can get the show notes and on the link to this article you'll see there are a couple of well, typically obscure photos of what possibly could be, maybe, the Loch Ness Monster. Anyway, the article looks okay, so we'll do that as well.
just to introduce the article, there's a little bit of information from the editor. Editorially, I feel I have correctly entitled this bit of breaking news with the headline above. As far as I am concerned, there is no definite proof or even claim that what is visible in this photographic image is a Nessie or one of the Loch Ness monsters. What it is, right now, is an image from Loch Ness, allegedly. Beyond that, what is it? And now comes the story. A couple enjoying a romantic weekend in the Highlands believe they may have had a close encounter with the Loch Ness Monster. Experts are now investigating this latest photograph, which was taken by accident, to establish if it is in fact the Loch's most famous resident. Ian Monckton from Solihull took his fiancée Tracy Gordon to a cottage in Invermoriston on the shores of the Loch to celebrate her 30th birthday. On their way back to the village at about 11pm, they pulled into a lay-by. The driver's window was wound down, and before the couple stopped their car, they heard a commotion in the water. Using the car headlights and the flash from his camera to check their footing on the rocky shores of the loch, data analyst Ian unwittingly recorded this picture, which he hopes could be the elusive monster. There is clearly a very large shape in the water that looks aquatic a few metres out from where I was standing, and you could just see the tips of the trees lower down the slope to the lock in the photo, said Ian, who has passed the picture to naturalist Adrian Shine of the Loch Ness Project to get his expert opinion. Myself and Tracy were always quite sceptical about Nessie, but after having had this experience, I would say we now have a very open mind on the matter. It was the highlight of our trip, We'll definitely be back, and we are struggling to get an explanation for what we caught on camera. Ian said the pictures were taken from a small cliff overlooking the lock. But it was only when they got back to their country retreat and checked the images, they realised the significance of what they had on their digital camera. Ian said it was his first visit to Loch Ness, and the weather was reasonably clear, with only a light breeze. We decided to get away for a few days to celebrate Tracy's birthday, and because it was off-season, we headed up to Drummadokic for a meal. On our way back to Invermoriston, we stopped off at Urquhart Castle to take a few photos. But the lights that illuminate the castle were turned off, so there were no photo opportunities there. Then we pulled over at a parking point to let a car pass, as my fiancé doesn't drive as fast as the locals in the dark. I had the passenger window open, as I was smoking at the time, and as we pulled into the lay-by, there was a rustling and a splash. It sounded as if a mini had landed in the water. That's how loud it was. And as a follow-up to this article, I've just been reading some of the responses. The first one I quite like is by Charbui. Blobness Monster It could be a boneless, skinless chicken breast floating near the shore. Speaking of which, it's lunchtime, and Greybear agrees. Wonderful photo of a blobness. And by the looks of it, many of these people must have been writing their responses around dinner time. This guy says, Go to any buffet here in Las Vegas, and you'll see pans full of things that look like that, and that's by Coelacanth, 1938. Mystery Man writes, Oh, I don't know, a leaf floating in the water, a piece of trash, a hundred other things other than a Loch Ness Monster. 
There is absolutely no reason at all for me to think that this is a photo of a large, unknown animal in the lock. Ah, so it looks like not too many people are believing what's in this article. Anyway, go to the website, have a look at the photo and see what you think. And if you're a regular listener to Mysteries Abound, you'll recognise the music, and it usually means a mysterious story is upon us. And this one comes from the www.mysteriouspeople.com, and it's entitled King of the Gypsies, Bamfylde Moore Carew. Bamfylde Moore Carew was born in July 1693 in Bickley, near Tiverton in Devon, less than 20 miles from Witheridge, the birthplace of Mary Wilcox, alias Princess Caribou. He was the son of the Reverend Theodore Carew, the Carews being an ancient local family, and his godfathers at his baptism were Hugh Bamfylde and a Major Moore, hence his name. At the age of 12, Carew was sent to a Tiverton school and progressed well in his first four years there, excelling in Latin and Greek and also less scholarly pursuits, especially hunting with his school friends. Soon his attention was taken up entirely by hunting and on one occasion while chasing a deer through fields of ripening corn, his hunting party caused a great deal of damage to the crops. Complaints were made to the headmaster of the school by the affected farmers and Carew and his schoolmates were so severely threatened about what might become of them that they ran away from school. They eventually found themselves at an alehouse just outside Tiverton where they fell in with a group of gypsies and spent the night drinking with them. Impressed by the freedom of the gypsy lifestyle, Carew and his companions decided to join their numbers there and then. This agreement meant following the gypsies' particular laws and form of government and paying allegiance to an elected gypsy king. Through his actions and buoyant personality, it wasn't long before Carew became notorious and respected amongst the gypsies, mainly for his skill in disguise and trickery. Outside the gypsy fraternity amongst the more gullible, he had a local reputation as an astrologer and fortune teller. On one occasion he was consulted by a certain Madame Musgrove, who suspected that there was a large amount of money buried somewhere around her house and promised a large reward if he located it. Carew pretended to study his secret art and told the lady that the treasure lay under a laurel tree in her garden. But she should delay the search until her planet of good fortune was in the right position. The lady was delighted and rewarded Carew with 20 guineas. Of course, when the poor woman finally decided to dig beneath the laurel tree, she found nothing there. After a year and a half of gypsy living, 
Carew returned home to his parents, but grew bored with home life and left once more to join the Gypsies. Over the next few years, using various ingenious disguises, such as a lunatic called Mad Tom, a seaman, a zealous clergyman, a rat-catcher and even an old woman, he extracted money from various gentlemen throughout the West Country, some of whom he knew well but were apparently unable to see through his disguises. Carew later eloped with the daughter of a respectable apothecary and was subsequently married at Bath, then travelling with his wife to Bristol and through Somerset, Dorset and Hampshire. In Gosport, they paid a visit to Carew's uncle, who offered him money to quit the gypsy life and return to his family. Carew refused. He was having too much fun. Claus Patch, the king of the gypsies, lay dying, and a vast number of gypsies descended on London to choose a new king. Carew was duly elected king of the mendicants, or beggars. There followed more disguises often that of a shipwrecked sailor looking for arms, and scams until he was captured at Barnstaple in Devon, where he was imprisoned for two months and then brought up for trial, loaded with chains at the quarter sessions at Exeter Castle. Being asked by the judge which countries he had travelled in, Carew answered Denmark, Sweden, Russia, France, Spain, Portugal, Canada and Ireland, proving that he had imagination at least. The judge answered that he must prepare himself for a hotter climate as he was to be transported as a convict to Maryland. After an 11-week voyage, the prison ship arrived at its destination and all 100 prisoners were ordered to tidy themselves up for sale the next day. The planters arrived next morning to view the slaves and while a group of them were arguing over his purchase, Carew managed to escape into the woods. He was recaptured, whipped for his trouble, and like Henry Moore Smith, fitted with a heavy iron collar. He escaped again, and concealing himself in the day and travelling only by night, eventually met with a tribe of friendly Indians who released him from the neck iron. Carew left them and travelled through Pennsylvania in the guise of a Quaker, and subsequently as a sailor, conning money out of wealthy merchants using various tall stories. He made his way to New York, at that time a city of around 7,000 inhabitants, and got a passage on a boat sailing to Bristol. But wary of re-arrest in England, he pricked his hands and face with the point of a dagger, rubbed them in salt and gunpowder, and groaned in agony to convince those who tried to arrest him that he was suffering from smallpox. Again he travelled around the West Country, extracting money by begging, usually disguised as a shipwrecked seaman, and at Maiden Bradley in Wiltshire, met an even more desperate-looking beggar than himself. They joined company and begged together through the town and at the house of Lord Weymouth, a local noble well known for his severe treatment of impostors. It took some time for Carew to find out his ragged companion was actually Lord Weymouth himself, disguised as he often was to gauge the response and attitudes of local residents to such beggars. Some time after this, with Carew in disguise as a decrepit old man selling matches and collecting old rags, he met another ragman and they arrived together at a place called 
Gutter Hall in Porluk near Devon. Here they found no lodgings, but were told of a house they could stay in for free, with food thrown in. They soon found out why. The house was haunted. The local farmer asked the two beggars to lay the ghost of an old woman who haunted the place. If they were successful, the reward would be 20 shillings. They stayed the night there, accompanied by the farmer's solidly built son, whom they scared out of his wits by throwing handfuls of stones down the stairs. Next morning, they reassured the farmer that they had laid the ghost and received their reward. Apparently, the house was quiet after this. On one occasion, whilst walking in Exeter, Carew was recognised, captured and forced without trial into a ship sailing once again to Maryland. During the 16-week journey, the captain died and Carew himself was infected with fever. On arrival in Maryland, Carew escaped again, this time in a canoe, and made for the woods. He travelled by night to avoid his pursuers and hid in trees by day, stealing food from houses and farms when he could. According to his own account, he crossed the River Delaware on horseback before arriving at Rhode Island and thence to Boston. Estimating the population then at 24,000 and comparing a beacon hill there, where pulleys drew up a lighted barrel of tar to warn the country in case of invasion, to Glastonbury Tor. Back home, he was again reunited with his wife and daughter. Visiting a relation of his, Sir Thomas Carew, the Gypsy King was again offered a comfortable living if he would forsake his vagabond way of life. Again, he refused. In 1745, curious about the news of the Jacobite Rebellion under Bonnie Prince Charlie, or the Young Pretender as he was known, he travelled north to Edinburgh, there meeting up with the rebels. Because of his apparent enthusiasm for their cause, he was asked to join their number, but feigned illness and lameness and was excused. Nevertheless, he apparently travelled among the rebels south to Carlisle and on to Manchester and then Derby, where he heard a report that the Duke of Cumberland was coming to fight them. Lack of support from English Jacobites and French allies persuaded the rebels to withdraw to Carlisle, though Bonnie Prince Charlie himself was against this. After the withdrawal, Carew headed homewards, being careful to change his note to God bless King George and the brave Duke William. Once more reunited with his wife, he began to feel too old for his former exertions and devoted himself to revising the laws of the gypsy community. But a serious illness forced him to resign his kingship and spend his last years in his hometown of Brickley. One story goes that he came into some money on the death of a relative another through winning a lottery, and bought a house in the country. He lived to see his daughter's marriage and grandchildren and died around 1758. He is buried in the local churchyard at Brickley. Carew seems to have been the consummate 18th century rogue and vagabond, though his stories also suggest real ingenuity in matters of disguise and trickery. The first account of his life... The Life and Adventures of Bamfylde Moore Carew was published in 1745 whilst he was still living. Unfortunately, it is not known how much of the book is fact, as alternative reliable sources for his escapades are extremely limited.
However, it is clear he was a nationally renowned figure. He was mentioned in contemporary magazines and is even referred to in the popular literature of the day, such as Thackeray's Vanity Fair. In the West Country, he was a local hero and known throughout the region as King Karoo. A leaf from life. The following article comes from the www.usnews.com website. Columbus might have been a Viking disciple, and it's written by Bruce B. Auster. Pirates attacked Columbus's ship west of Gibraltar as he headed north to England. The young Italian crewman, his vessel ablaze, gripped an oar to keep from drowning and swam to shore. He caught the next ship to the end of the earth. Fifteen years before his mission to the New World, the story goes, Columbus reached Iceland, the land known in legend as Ultima Thule, the farthest possible place in the world where land, water and air are all mixed together. The mysterious island boasted volcanoes, lava black beaches and snowy white landscapes. It may have also been the birthplace of Columbus's bold leap to America. Historians continue to search for new documentation to prove that Columbus reached Iceland, and if he did, whether his stay there at age 25 stirred the adventurer to imagine that a passage to China lay to the west, across the Atlantic. Some 500 years earlier, the Vikings had set sail from Iceland and ultimately reached the New World. Could Columbus have heard the stories of Leif Erikson's voyage to the place called Vinland? If the story is true, Columbus would have learned from Icelandic sailors that there was a land to the west, says William Fitzhugh, a curator of the Smithsonian Institution's exhibit Vikings, which opened in April in Washington and will travel for two years throughout North America. It is no coincidence that historians in Scandinavia are the cheerleaders for the Columbus in Iceland saga, while those in Italy turn up their noses. If the Viking backers are right, Columbus not only arrived in America after the Vikings, he borrowed their idea. The Vikings did beat Columbus to America, an accomplishment no longer in dispute. Forty years ago, archaeologists discovered evidence of a Viking settlement in Newfoundland. No other Viking sites have been found despite exhaustive and sometimes ridiculous efforts. But the ruins of the buildings discovered in Newfoundland confirmed the essential details of the Vinland sagas. The two oral tales that describe the journeys of Eric the Red to Greenland and Leif Erikson and others to North America. Scholars 
cannot be sure Columbus even reached Iceland. The case isn't ironclad because only one fragment of evidence from Columbus's day remains. The explorer's son, in his biography of his father, cites Columbus's memoirs, in which he describes the voyage of February 1477. For years, historians did not know what to make of that account. Many details were accurate. The winter that year was mild, so waters in the north were navigable. Others were wrong. Columbus badly misstates Iceland's latitude. But the errors, because they reflect the limited knowledge of the time, are now seen as proof of the memoir's authenticity. In 1484, just seven years after he is believed to have stopped in Iceland, Columbus proposed to the King of Portugal that he could reach China by crossing the Atlantic. No single spark lighted the explorer's imagination. Before his voyage, Columbus would have known of Marco Polo's journey to China. He is also believed to have studied Ptolemy's Guide to Geography, a brilliant Roman-era work by the Greek astronomer who argued that the sun revolved around the Earth. His geography, though influential, vastly underestimated the size of the Earth. That led Columbus to believe a shorter route to China and India could be found to the west. Ptolemy's teachings may have only confirmed what he knew from the Viking sagas, that a westward passage was possible. That Columbus wasn't the first to America is unthinkable to many. Ken Fedder, debunker and author of Fraud's Myths and Mysteries, gets the most hate mail from Columbus lovers. I expect psychic archaeologists to get on my case, not the Columbus Appreciation Society, he says. Others suggest the Viking discovery had no lasting importance. It is unquestionable that the Vikings got there first, if getting there is all that matters, says historian David Hengi, who analysed the journal of Columbus's first voyage. But Columbus catalyzed settlement of the New World. Might the Vikings have the jump there too? New evidence being gathered by archaeologists may prove that the Vikings maintained elaborate trade relations with native North Americans for some 350 years. If the Norse were huddling in Greenland trying to survive, that's one thing, says the Smithsonian's Fitzhugh. But if they were exploring, meeting natives and trading, then that's a new chapter in American history that hasn't been explored. Paolo Emilio Taviani entitled his biography of Columbus, The Grand Design. But the adventures of Columbus and the Vikings, five centuries apart, suggest how both will and chance shape history. Columbus's design was grounded in error and miscalculation, but it succeeded brilliantly. Olafur Elgesson, a former board member of Ireland's Historical Society, who believes that Columbus reached Iceland, thinks the visit could have been crucial. It might have given Columbus confidence to know there were lands on the other side of the ocean, he says. Perhaps that's why, when the crew of the Santa Maria nearly rebelled, afraid the winds would never turn and blow them home again, Columbus calmed them, then kept sailing west.
And it's time for a little feedback about the podcast. I found this review on the iTunes US store and it's from LiveGood and it's entitled Really Well Done. Paul Rex has come a long way since his first podcast. He has definitely filled the void left by Mysterious Universe's demise and actually does a better job presenting all information, sceptic and believer. Kudos and thanks for the free, fun, weird and strange podcast. You should also check out this podcast as other podcasts, Origins and Bizarre Bizarre. They are just as fun and interesting. Well, thank you for your review, Live Good. It's really appreciated. And I do feel as though I've come a long way since episode one, which was my very first go at podcasting. It was mainly on Origins. I think by the time I started doing Mysteries Abound, I had it pretty well worked out and buying a new microphone around episode 30 of Origins really improved the sound quality. Anyway, thank you for the review. It's much appreciated. And there's also another on here from TBMD and it's entitled, What a Great Podcast. Great podcast by Paul Rex. Intriguing stories about unexplained and sometimes explained mysteries throughout time and around the world. Reminds me of a show I watched as a kid called One Step Beyond. Keep them coming. I'm almost through the current ones and look forward to more. Well, thank you for that review. Much appreciated. And there was also one on Podcast Alley and it's by Crazy Zoo House 6. Love the show. Also enjoy Bizarre Bizarre and Origins by the same host. And remember everyone, if you would like to provide some feedback for the show, it really is appreciated and keeps me inspired to keep going. And the best place to do it is probably through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. If you're interested in email, the email address for this podcast is mysteries, M-I-S-T-E-R-I-E-S, at origins, which is O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, dot info, I-N-F-O. And I've also received a couple of emails from people inquiring as to how we're going here in Australia during the bushfires. Well, fortunately for myself, I live about halfway up the east coast of Australia and the bushfires have been occurring in the southern states, which are about 800 miles or about 1,200 kilometres from where I live. Australia, as you may be aware, is a vast continent and we do get extremes. And unfortunately for the poor people of Victoria, their state has suffered really badly with these fires and the whole country is in shock over the death and damage that's been caused by these bushfires. And believe it or not, Australia really is a place of extremes. In the north of the country, about 600 miles or about 1,000 kilometres from where I live, they had a cyclone cross the coast just recently and it's created all sorts of problems. And there's heavy rain occurring up there still and they've been having lots of flooding. So Australia really is a place of extremes. At the bottom of the country, it's dry and on fire. In the north, it's underwater. And fortunately for me, I'm in Brisbane and our weather here seems to be relatively normal for this time of the year. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, crashed up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flame! It's burst into flame and it's falling! It's crazy! Watch it! Get out of the way! Get out of the way! Get this shotty! Get this shotty! It's crashing! It's crashing! Terrible! Oh my! Get out of the way, please! It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning grass, and all the folks between it. This is terrible! This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world! Oh, it's just the vibrations! Twenty, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky! It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen! The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning. And from the www.unmuseum.org website, The Mystery of the Hindenburg Disaster. It was the largest airship ever built. 
over 800 feet long from its nose to its massive tail fins. It was the height of luxury travel and carried over 2,656 people across the Atlantic from Germany to New York and Rio de Janeiro. It was the Hindenburg. In the space of 37 seconds, the mighty Zeppelin was destroyed in a fire that killed a third of its crew and passengers and left spectators crying in horror. What caused this catastrophe? Was it negligence, sabotage, or as Hitler called it, an act of God? The first successful dirigible, a balloon that has engines to control its horizontal movement, was built in France in 1852. Although other countries built these types of airships, the Germans quickly became the most advanced in this form of lighter-than-air technology. Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, a German businessman, built a fleet of experimental dirigibles. The types of airships Zeppelin built were spindle-shaped with a rigid internal steel structure, unlike the flexible-bodied blimps common today. Inside the craft were large bags filled with gas that gave the ship its lift, as well as catwalks to allow the crew to move back and forth inside the hull to service the ship. Beneath the craft was a gondola which carried the crew and passengers. By 1911, Zio Olin's airship LZ-10, also known as the Schwaben, was in passenger service and would go on to make 218 flights carrying 1,553 passengers. Zeppelin became so well known for this type of dirigible that his name soon became synonymous with that type of airship. Starting in 1914, the beginning of World War I, the Count's Zeppelins were used to drop bombs on cities in a number of European countries. They made over 50 raids on London alone, dropping nearly 200 tonnes of explosives. As the war progressed, however, most of the Germans' Zeppelin fleet was destroyed by British guns or aircraft. The gas that gave them their lift, hydrogen, was very flammable, and even a small bomb hitting a Zeppelin could reduce it to ashes in just a few minutes. After the war, Germany again began building large airships. As part of war reparations, the Germans built the ZR-3 Los Angeles for the US Navy. In 1928, the Zeppelin company built what was the most successful passenger dirigible of all time, the Graf Zeppelin. The Graf Zeppelin was 100 feet longer than any other airship ever built and stretched 776 feet from nose to tail fins. It was designed as a passenger liner to compete with the ocean liners crossing the Atlantic. With a maximum speed of 80 miles per hour, it cut the time it took to make the trip by more than two-thirds. The passenger cabin was outfitted with drapes and thick carpeting. Dinner was made by professional chefs and was served using silverware, crystal and fine china. Time magazine declared, certainly for transoceanic ships, the airship is the thing. The Graf Zeppelin was so successful that the Zeppelin company planned a new airship, one that would be bigger, faster and carry more passengers with more luxurious amenities. It would be named after a national hero who had been elected Germany's president in 1925. It would be called the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg was not only longer than the Graf Zeppelin, it was an extra 35 feet wide. This meant it had nearly twice the volume for lifting gas, 
7,062,000 cubic feet than the Graf Zeppelin. There was a reason for this. The Hindenburg's designers had decided to fill the new dirigible with helium gas, not hydrogen. Helium, unlike hydrogen, does not burn, making it safer. However, it didn't produce as much lift as hydrogen, so the extra volume the Hindenburg had for gas was an important feature. The Hindenburg never got its helium though. At that time, helium was difficult to produce and the United States had a monopoly on the manufacture of it. When the Americans saw that Hitler was in power in Germany, they feared he would use the gas for military purposes and therefore would not sell the Germans the helium necessary to fill the Hindenburg. The Zeppelin company was forced to redesign the ship for hydrogen and make changes to minimise the possibility of fire. Though it may seem strange to us today, back then the airship seemed to be the wave of the future in travel. At that time, crossing the Atlantic in an airplane was risky business. Planes could travel only short distances, carrying a minimum of weight and required constant refuelling. To many, the Zeppelins was the natural successor to the ocean liner. The Zeppelin company planned that the Hindenburg would be the first of a fleet of airships plying the skies of the world. Even today, the Hindenburg remains the largest aircraft ever flown. Some of the smaller, modern advertising blimps have a total length only slightly larger than the girth of the Hindenburg. If the Hindenburg stood on end, it would dwarf the Washington Monument. It could lift 112 tonnes beyond its own weight, an incredible amount for that time. Passengers enjoyed staterooms with private showers. The dining room served the finest food on blue and gold porcelain plate settings. The ship provided the passengers with a spectacular view along its windowed 200-foot-long promenade deck. One restriction the ship had, though, was smoking. Because of the hydrogen, smoking was only permitted in a special fireproof room. A one-way trip across the Atlantic cost $400 and took only two days. Flights began in 1936 with the airship making a total of six trips to Rio de Janeiro and ten trips to New York, carrying a total of 2,656 passengers. In 1937 it made a trip to Rio, then returned to Germany. On May 3, 1937, the Zeppelin departed Frankfurt for North America, carrying 97 people. It would be the first trip to New York City that season. The trip went smoothly and by 11.40am on May the 6th, the airship was passing over Boston. Landing at the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst was delayed due to bad weather, so the ship's captain, Commander Max Pruss, decided to linger over New York City giving his passengers spectacular views of the Empire State Building, the Bronx, Harlem, Central Park, the Battery, Times Square, the Statue of Liberty and Ebbets Field, where a game was being played between the Dodgers and the Pittsburgh Pirates. At 4pm, the Hindenburg arrived over Lakehurst, but the weather was still worrisome. Commander Pruss decided to take the ship southeast until he hit shore, then north to Asbury Park, then finally inland back to Lakehurst. At 6.12, Charles E. Rosendahl, commanding officer of the Lakehurst NAS, sent a message to the Hindenburg. Conditions now considered suitable for landing. 
Eleven minutes later, a stronger message followed. Recommend landing now. It was almost half an hour later at 7pm that the Hindenburg started its landing. It made a sharp turn to the left and approached the field. The Zeppelin was designed to be secured by its nose to a mooring mast that would allow the airship to move so that the nose always pointed into the wind. As the Hindenburg got within 700 feet of the mast, the engines were reversed, bringing the ship to a stop. Ropes were dropped to allow the ground crew to tow the ship into position. At this point, the Zeppelin was hanging about 275 feet off the ground. It was 7.25pm. On the ground, a radio reporter named Herbert Morrison was covering the airship's arrival and his comments were recorded for posterity. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, scratched up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's first in the plane. It's first in the plane and it's falling. It's crazy. Get it started, get it started. It's right and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh my, get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just a situation. Twenty, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. It's close to the flames now. And the flames The flames were first visible towards the tail of the ship. Then within seconds, the hydrogen in the gas bags caught on and the whole aft of the craft was engulfed in a mass of flame and smoke that towered hundreds of feet into the sky. As the hydrogen in the rear of the ship burned, the Hindenburg lost its lift and fell to the ground, nose pointing upwards to the sky. In just 37 seconds since the first flames were spotted, the ship lay on the ground, the skeleton of its framework, the only thing visible through the fire. Passengers jumped from windows and ran for safety. One cabin boy had his life saved when a water tank burst above his head. Of the 97 people on board, miraculously, 62 managed to escape with their lives, including the ship's captain. An investigation into the cause of the disaster was made both by the United States and the German governments. They concluded a hydrogen leak was ignited by a spark of static electricity. Both governments wanted to close the book on the disaster. The Americans were anxious to avoid an international incident and the Germans were embarrassed that the cause might have been a design flaw in the ship or the result of foul play. Some theories suggest that when Commander Pruss made his final turn to land, a support wire snapped inside the ship, tearing one of the hydrogen gas cells. The leaking gas might have been set off by a rare natural electrical phenomenon known as St Elmo's fire. St Elmo's fire is usually seen as a static electric charge around high objects, like church steeples during stormy weather. A more recent theory suggested by Addison Bain, a former manager of NASA's hydrogen program, was that the initial fire was not burning hydrogen. Hydrogen burns without much of a visible flame, but the witnesses described the fire as extremely colourful. Bain thinks the doping solution used to stretch and waterproof the hull was responsible. 
The compound, a layer of iron oxide covered with coats of cellulose butyrate acetate mixed with powdered aluminium, is very similar to a mixture used to power solid fuel rockets. The Hindenburg was literally painted with rocket fuel, says Bain. Bain suspects that the Germans figured out the real cause, though they didn't want to admit they'd made such a dangerous mistake. The doping solution used on the Graf Zeppelin II, completed after the Hindenburg disaster, was changed to include a fireproofing agent and the aluminium was replaced with bronze, which is less combustible. Bain thinks that the fire was started by a build-up of static electricity from the storm on the craft's surface and frame. When the mooring ropes, wet from the storm, were dropped to the ground, the frame discharged, creating an electrical differential between the frame and covering which started the fire. Some of the crew that survived, including Commander Pruss, suspected the fire was sabotage. The Hindenburg was more than just a German airship. It was a symbol of German power and technical prowess. Hitler's government, which had helped pay for the Hindenburg's construction, had employed it for such jobs as making propaganda appearances over the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Each of the huge tail fins of the Hindenburg wore the swastika emblem the symbol of Hitler's Nazi party. Officials had been concerned even before the ship reached New York that someone opposing Hitler might make a terrorist attack upon the craft. If a saboteur was at work, it must have been one of the crew or passengers. If so, that person may have placed a time bomb along one of the ship's internal catwalks. Most likely, it detonated prematurely, or the saboteur did not count on the craft being so late at arriving and could not return to the bomb to reset the timing mechanism. Either way, the saboteur may have died in the resulting explosion. A bomb placed near the rear of the craft might have explained the initial flames reported by witnesses near the tail as flames from the explosion rose up the gas ventilation shaft to burst out the top of its hood. The initial explosion would have ruptured the hydrogen gas cells, causing a more powerful second explosion and destroyed the craft. Several people have suggested that the saboteur might have been Joseph Spar, a passenger who survived. On several occasions Spar had gone into the bowels of the ship to visit his dog in the cargo area. This might have given him the opportunity to place a bomb. Others suspect that Eric Spiel, an introverted crewman who perished in the fire, might have been the saboteur. Spiel was thought to have anti-Nazi leanings. There is no proof against either of these gentlemen and no real way of knowing if a bomb caused the disaster. One thing is for sure though, the destruction of the Hindenburg signalled the end of the great Zeppelin passenger liners. There was only one other vessel completed of that fleet of airships, of which the Hindenburg was to be the first ever built. This was the Graf Zeppelin II. At the start of World War II, it was brought into military service for a short time, then dismantled, and the parts used for the war effort. By the end of the war, the jet engine had been invented, and transatlantic passenger service soon was carried out with a reliability and speed that could not be matched by lighter-than-air aircraft. Memories of the horror of the Hindenburg disaster lingered on, killing any future for the large, rigid passenger airships. The Zeppelin, once thought to be the wave of the future, was suddenly a thing 
of the past. The following article comes from the www.museumofhoaxes.com website and it's entitled Pope Joan. John Anglicus was a 9th century Englishman. He travelled to Athens where he gained a reputation for his knowledge of the sciences. Eventually he came to lecture at the Trivium in Rome where his fame grew even larger. He became a cardinal. And when Pope Leo IV died in 853 AD, he was unanimously elected Pope. As Pope John VIII, he ruled for two years until 855 AD. However, when riding one day from St. Petersburg to the Lateran, he had to stop by the side of the road and, to the astonishment of everyone, gave birth to a child. It turned out that Pope John VIII was really a woman. In other words, Pope John was really Pope Joan. According to legend, upon discovering the Pope's true gender, the people of Rome tied her feet together and dragged her behind a horse while stoning her until she died. Another legend has it that she was sent to a faraway convent to repent her sins and that the child she bore grew up to become the Bishop of Ostia. It is not known whether the story of Pope Joan is true. The first known reference to her occurs in the 13th century, 350 years after her supposed reign. Around this time, her image also began to appear as the High Priestess card in the Tarot deck. The Catholic Church at first seemed to accept the reality of Pope Joan. Marginal notes in a 5th century document refer to a statute called the Woman Pope with her child that was supposedly erected near the Lateran. There was also a rumour that for some years the chairs used during the papal consecrations had holes in their seats so that an official check of the Pope's gender could be performed. During the Reformation in the 6th century, the Catholic Church began to deny the existence of Pope Joan. However, at the same time, Protestant writers insisted on her reality, primarily because the existence of a female Pope was a convenient piece of anti-Catholic propaganda. Modern scholars have been unable to resolve the historicity of Pope Joan. And finally for today, from the paranormal.about.com website, from the Your True Tales December 2008 section, an article by Richard B. entitled Office Poltergeist. I am going to outline a series of strange events that cover a period of time from 2004 to 2008. 
I have now left the company in that particular office and I am glad that I do not have to go back to it. I worked in a large, very old building in London which had many offices. In the fall of 2004, my line manager and I found what we believed to be a quiet room to conduct a review of my performance. We both sat down next to a large fireplace. It was a Friday night and practically everyone else had gone home. My bosses were the only ones still working as they were senior and had a lot to do. From out of the air itself, the ghost started to wolf whistle, as a workman or builder would. It struck up an unrecognisable tune. It kept repeatedly doing this louder and louder to gain our attention. Both of us could not believe what was happening, so we continued with the appraisal. My head of department walked in, drawn by the noise. She said, What was that noise? Someone was whistling in here a few seconds ago. Obediently, the ghost stopped, and my head then disappeared back to her office. It then resumed the whistling from where it had left off. This time, though, I could hear many voices in the background. It sounded like a busy marketplace with many stalls. Embarrassed, I did not know what to say or do, so we both continued the appraisal. When we finished, I got up and left silently. My boss lingered in the room and tried to work out where the sounds had come from. Of course, there was no one there, and there was no building work going on at the time. In January 2008, I came back to work in the same office after some years away. I knew the room was haunted, but I bravely told myself not to worry. I did not want the ghost to win, so I stubbornly told myself that it was a long time ago and it was no longer there. Of course, I was totally wrong. The ghostly presence was still there. I first became aware of it when I phoned in to say I would be sick and off work. I got through to my new line manager's phone. I got through to the answering machine and in the background I could hear something whistling exactly as I had heard it in October 2004. It was allowed, done repeatedly, to gain my attention. I would come in on a Monday morning and find papers that I had left on my desk disturbed. In chatting to my colleagues, I casually mentioned that the section was haunted. They, of course, all laughed. Inexplicably, the ghost had been watching us because it developed the habit of rushing through the office. We all knew it was a presence because we could feel a very strong breeze or gust of wind and a sudden drop in temperature. The office was linked by a dark connecting passageway which went through to the next door. I never liked the passageway as it was always dark and unlit. The ghost with greater frequency started to focus on an unlocked large wooden door. My boss work colleagues and myself were working. We all heard four or five sharp raps on the door and we noticed that something was pushing it open and then putting the door back in its place. My colleague went to investigate. Of course, all he found was an empty corridor. My phone would sometimes ring unexpectedly and I would find myself connected to various out-of-office recorded messages and the speaking clock. No one was there and it was definitely not my friends playing tricks on me. One Friday morning after a meeting, everyone was present in the room. The door was wedged open. There was a sudden strong breeze blowing through the section and something swept through, 
The force of the wind was so strong, it blew the door off the wedge, before being jammed open. A week or two before Christmas, everyone had decided to go out for a long team-building lunch. I was late and did not want to go because I was working on an urgent task which I needed to complete. I had nipped out to go to the toilet and had locked the door. I put the key in the lock and entered, and that was when I saw it. I was not shocked because I've seen ghosts before. It was over really in a fraction of a second and I did not get much of a chance to look at it. I was aware of a shadow or blurred outline. It was standing next to my colleague's desk and the door to the passageway. My boss, who would get cold, would often shut the door. I was aware, as was the presence, that I could see it. It took one look and then shot off at great speed and opened the shut door, went through and shut the door behind it to the passage. I decided to keep quiet about what I saw as I did not want my colleagues to become fearful of working in the office. By now I had enough, so I arranged a meeting with the head of department. I went in and explained the whole thing about seeing ghosts and how I had seen many. I also explained that I wanted to leave the section as I did not believe it was now safe for me. I feared that the ghost would form an attachment to me and I did not want it to follow me home. My head of section who finally believed me said callously, Okay, so the section is haunted. What do you expect me to do about this? I did nothing and went back to my desk. Christmas came and went and it was now January. My head of section decided to rearrange the office, including the desks and furniture. This brought on for me a new kind of fear. I had read that the paranormal activity increases when building work or disruption takes place to a room. I discussed this with my head of department and he reassuringly suggested that I take a few days off until the layout had been changed. I returned to the office and all the desks had been moved. It was, of course, an improvement. A few days afterward, my colleagues on the other side of the room started to be curiously affected by the coldness. They would complain all the time that it is very cold in here and they started to wear jumpers. They called out the heating engineer to fix the radiators, but the room remained very cold. They brought in a thermometer for a couple of days to measure the department. The head of the department walking through the section knew what was going on, but he would never let on to them. Some months later I was required to stay late one Friday to get some urgent work done. This was the only time I could get it done, as I had been off work ill. Everyone had gone home and I continued to work. I forgot about the ghost and the sense of urgency of the work distracted me from thinking about it. By now it was dark outside and everyone had gone away for the weekend. I got on with my work and was well into it. Suddenly I was startled by the light above me which suddenly failed. All the other lights in the room over everyone's desks remained on, except mine. I got up from my desk and walked over to the light switch. I flipped the light back up to the up position and the light above switched on. There was, of course, absolutely nothing wrong with it. So whatever was in the room had flipped the light switch. I returned to my desk and resumed my work. As I sat there, I heard in my ears loud footsteps and banging in the long dark passageway that led to the next door office. I got up and went to look, and of course, there was no one there. 
completely freaking, caution got the better of me and I hurriedly left the office. No amount of work or money could get me back. After that I never stayed late again. Some weeks later I was working in the office and my head of section and I heard loud banging on what sounded like pipework. The noise was coming from behind me. I presumed at the time that it was workmen. My head of section said, Do you hear what I hear? The loud banging? I said, Do not worry, it's only workmen. My boss replied, It can't be. There are no workmen here. The wall behind you is totally thick. There is nothing there other than a thick, solid wall. Both of us fell silent and we resumed our work, as we wouldn't speak of this again. I eventually left the office and found work with another company. At home, two weeks after leaving, I came down the stairs and replayed the answering machine messages back. There was one that left me stunned and cold to the bone. There was a hissing and a lot of interference and then a man's voice which spoke in a harsh tone. The language was gobbledygook and was unintelligible. Startled, I said to my father, It is the ghost. He played it back once and then immediately hit the delete key. We never spoke of this again, and fortunately for me, I have not since that day ever received another. I feel for my work colleagues who are left to work in that section. The one with the office poltergeist. Well, that concludes episode 21 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we'll come back and download episode 22. And if you like this podcast, maybe you'll be interested in my other, which is Origins. It can be found on iTunes or Podcast Alley or other good places where you can get podcast feeds. If you'd like to know more information about it, visit the website www.origins.info. And also on the Origins website, you can find the show notes for this episode with links to each article that was read. Much of the music for today's podcast came from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music. Dot .podshow.com Bye for now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.